You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season now's the time to buy at fisher homes for a limited time only enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375 percent apr 6.139 percent apr with these exclusive lower rates you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home financing provided by victory mortgage llc nmls 461249 equal housing lender This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. One of the ways people learn to care about our planet is by seeing the natural world up close. My guests today have dedicated their lives to taking their audiences to remote areas and telling the stories of the people and the animals who live there. The animal kingdom couldn't ask for a better ambassador than Philippe D'Andrade. The award-winning filmmaker is the host of the series Untamed on Nat Geo Wild. His boundless enthusiasm for all animals and the lengths he's willing to go to to capture their everyday majesty have made Philippe D'Andrade a rising star in the world of wildlife filmmaking. But first, I'm talking to Glenn Shepard, an ethnobotanist and medical anthropologist who spent decades studying indigenous people in the Amazon. He holds a doctorate in medical anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley, and his work has been featured in National Geographic and The New Yorker. Glenn speaks 11 languages, and his ease at learning them played a big role in deciding his career. My dad's a doctor, and I was supposed to follow the family tradition, become a doctor, obviously. And so I was all trained, you know, pre-med. I was going to do pre-med at Princeton and, you know, straight-A student and all that. But... Almost by accident, I just discovered that I was really good at languages. I mean, there was nothing in the family. I just sort of, I did French in high school. I spent like a summer exchange program in France. And like in three weeks, I was speaking French like perfectly. I mean, not perfectly, but very well. And I just sort of had this, I wish I had that knack for like electric guitar or something, but (laughs) I just have this inborn talent. I don't know where it came from. I'm just very good at learning, picking up language and speaking them, more more spoken than written. And so I get to I get to college and I just started learning all the languages I could. I took I took Arabic, I took German, I tried out Chinese for a bit, but I ended up sticking with Arabic and German. And I love traveling. And so I was thinking, how can I, you know, medicine languages, where do they meet? And I discovered sort of by accident the field of ethnobotany, which is the traditional uses of plants by different peoples around the world, indigenous peoples, ancient peoples as well. And so I remember in an undergraduate class, I took some archaeology classes. 
And one of the student papers I had to write was about trepanation. Trepanation is this ancient practice in Peru and other places where they would do surgery on the skull. They would literally cut open the skull. They find these skulls in the Peruvian desert of Nazca with holes open in them. And they can tell by the growth of the bone that the person survived the, the, the treatment. And they weren't... Most of they the did case, it for what purpose? Well, to relieve pressure? Yeah, it, was, it, it doesn't seem to have been to treat like a brain injury. They seem to be healthy people, and they think that they opened up to open channels of communication with the spirits. That's one of the theories. And, you know, they use coca leaf as an anesthetic. They use these obsidian knives. So they, they performed brain surgery in ancient Peru. And that sort of fascinated me. Oh, they, brain surgery, <laughs> coca anesthetics. Yeah. And so I sort of got interested in this interface between archaeology, anthropology, medicine, languages, and discovered this field of ethnobotany and started reading up on it. Ethnobotany isn't really taught as a discipline, often in anthropology, you sort of have to find your way. And I actually wound up, I was taking Arabic, and my Arabic teaching assistant, he was doing his PhD on the poetry of Jordanian Bedouins, like the, these, these ancient medieval poems that were recited by heart by these ancient, medieval, these ancient poems that are survived today. He was doing his PhD on that. And I said, well, that sounds really fascinating. Do they use plants? Oh, yeah, they use these different medicinal plants. And so I, I went around the university, and I got money to spend the summer after my sophomore year, summer of 1985. And I said, I'm going to go to Jordan and live with these Bedouins and learn their medicinal plants. And so I showed up on the border of—it's literally the border—it's called H4 Province— so I show up on the border of Iraq. It's like, it's this panhandle of Jordan. It goes, it goes between Iraq, Syria, and Saudi Arabia. And there's this little panhandle out there where these Bedouin live. And you don't think there'd be any medicinal plants in the desert, but there are. It rains and these things grow. And they had all these interesting plants. They had this one plant that's called handel. There's an Arabic expression, mural handel. It means as bitter as this bitter gourd. And it, they, someone who's really nasty, like a nasty person, you call Murad Handel, it's a bitter person. And it's this little, it's like a watermelon, same family as watermelon, but this size, and you cut it in half, it's very bitter. And to treat diabetes, you sit in a hot house, like sweat house, you cut it in half and you put it on your heel of your foot. And you just sit there in the sweat house until you taste the bitterness on your tongue. That's how so bitter it, it is. it moves through your body. It go, it's absorbed by your feet. And when you can taste the bitterness on your tongue, you stop because it's toxic. And it, they treat diabetes, diabetes in, in the Arabic world. It's oh incredible. So I, I was fascinated by this, you know, this medicinal plant, this knowledge, all these medicinal plants in the desert. And so this friend of mine, Jan, spent the fall semester of his senior year in Peru and wrote me these amazing letters. We're going down the Andes Mountains, the cloud forest, the howler monkeys are singing. And there's these Indians who come every couple weeks to bring bananas. They're called the Machiganga Indians. I was like, hmm. So I looked them up, went to the library, found a little vocabulary book written in 1924, read everything that was written about them. And when they get back, I go to Turborg, John Turborg. And I say, hey, I just got back from Jordan. I'm good at languages. I'm interested in ethnobotany. If I can find the money, will you take me to Peru to do my senior thesis? And he said, sure. Once I set foot in those Peruvian villages, it felt like I was coming home. I mean, I really, Jordan was amazing, but it was very foreign, very strange. It was a very strange, exotic experience. And, uh, and when I stepped foot in Peru, I was like, it was like being in Virginia. We grew up on the Chesapeake Bay, hunting, fishing, crabbing, boating. I felt like I was reliving my childhood. Just, and so I just, you know, I just felt at home and I said, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I felt like I was at home. In your lifetime, in the time that you went to Princeton and there was no place that necessarily was studying on the deeper level ethnobotany, where is ethnobotany being studied now? Do they have programs now or it still remains? It still remains sort of like me. It's sort of 
it doesn't really fit in any existing container. So it always falls between the cracks. So the, you know, the great ethnobotanist of the Amazon, Richard Schultes, that the wonderful film Embrace of the Serpent, the Colombian film that won the Oscar a couple right. of years back, was sort of loosely based on his life. Richard Schultes was an ethnobotanist at Harvard. And he was the greatest ethnobotanist of all time, really, certainly of the 20th century. He spent, I think, 12 years living in the Amazon, searching the origins of the curare poison that they use for surgery, muscle, you know, heart surgery, ayahuasca, this mysterious plant. Back then, it was a mysterious plant looking at the botanical identification of ayahuasca. He helped identify the magic mushroom in Mexico. He was this peyote. He was involved in all these great ethnobotanical discoveries. And yet, when he retired... Harvard simply never replaced his position as ethnobotanist because it's why not— do you think, Why do you think that is? It's not real botany. It's sort of this ethnobotany. It's this thing that's sort of between— Anthropologists don't consider it to be anthropology. Botanists don't consider it to be botany. Really? And it falls prey to these, these sort of rigid disciplinary boundaries. And it's renegade so, botany. Yeah, it's renegade <laughs> botany and renegade anthropology. And it doesn't fit into the mold. And so, so you have people like me or, you know, People who are interested in this, who create a program here, create a program there. University of Georgia had a, an important ethnobotany program for all. My professor, Brent Berlin, was there. But then he retired in Athens, in Athens Georgia. Wow. He was at Berkeley when I was at Berkeley. And then he moved to Georgia. And then, and then when he retired, it wasn't really – no one really kept it going. And so it's an unfortunate – result of the disciplinary boundaries that these very fascinating and important fields – I mean, all of this work on malaria – that's been coming out using these Chinese medicines to treat malaria. So ethnobotany still produces results. My son, my youngest son, Glenn Gabriel, when he was a year and a half old, he was diagnosed with this extremely rare, it's not exactly a cancer, it's an immune system disease that used to be considered a kind of lymphoma. It's called histiocytosis. And it basically causes the white blood cells to attack the body. And he had these huge holes in his skull. He lost one of his vertebrae from this. The immune system just attacks the bones. Oh, my and God. And he was treated at this wonderful clinic. In, we thought he had brain cancer and was going to be dead in six months. But it turned out to be this other very rare disease, like one in a million, histiocytosis. And among the treatments that he was given is a drug called vinblastine, which is used treating cancer. And it comes from the rosy periwinkle, originally from Madagascar, which was a traditional medicine by African peoples in the Caribbean, brought it. And it sort of went wild in the Caribbean. It's used in Afro-Caribbean traditional medicine. And it turns out to be very effective against cancer and, and other kinds of tumors. So he had his first shot. And he had this lump the size of an olive beside, behind his right ear. His mm. ear was sticking out. That's how he first noticed it. And after one shot, that lump just vanished. Mm. And so there is this tremendous potential for ethnobotany to contribute to human welfare. And it could also contribute to li sustainable livelihoods for indigenous peoples. But it just... The discipline doesn't have a home because it's it's interdisciplinary. Everyone talks about interdisciplinary at the universities, but when it comes down to like who we're going to hire, where's the funding going, it falls between the cracks. For someone on the ground and someone doing the work you're doing, when people in this country who are and, and I don't judge them because it's 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 just the state of things in America, and they're completely ignorant about the condition of the rainforest in in, in South America and particularly in Brazil, where the preponderance of it is in Brazil because of the size of Brazil. What's you, you live in the United States, and all you hear all the time is, like, they're losing, you know, whatever, whatever it is, 5,000 acres an hour or whatever the F it is that's going on down there. What's going on? Is it really that threatened, or is that, or is that exaggerated? Well, you know, I've worked in the Amazon for 35 years, and I've lived in Brazil, in the Brazilian Amazon, for 20 years. And the Amazon has always been under threat. Indigenous peoples have always been under threat. Gold rushes in different times, the Belo Monte Dam that was, that was being proposed in the 1990s, which was blocked initially, deforestation, drug trafficking, these things were always there. 
Beef cattle, cattle Beef ranching. Beef cattle, cattle ranching, uh, palm oil plantations, industrial agriculture, mining. Extraction mining, yeah. Mining, oil drilling, yeah. oil contamination, uh, gas wells, uh, the, the Camisea gas pipeline in Peru. Chevron in Ecuador. Chevron in Ecuador, mobile in Peru. Mm-hmm. So these threats have always been there. But these past two years in Brazil, what we've seen under the Bolsonaro administration, I've seen nothing like this in my 20 years where – in a sense, you know, there, there's Brazil has a, a constitution that is there's a whole article about indigenous people's rights, much uh, better rights than in the American case. You know, with what they have like rights to their traditional lands, tight land titling. The you know Brazil was under a military di- dictatorship from 1964 to 1988, and the 1988 constitution includes all these provisions for indigenous people's rights. And so, people like me and you know perhaps others, I guess we were sort of lulled into complacency, and then suddenly Bolsonaro gets elected, and all of these you know, constitutionally enshrined rights and protections just went down the drain. And, and, you know, those forces were there. The miners were there. The agribusiness was there. The cattle ranchers were there. But there was a pretense, at least, on behalf of the Brazilian government to obey these laws. We have these norms. You know, suddenly Bolsonaro comes in and gives people just a, a blank check, like, we don't have to obey these laws. He's the son. His father was a wildcat miner at Serra Pilada. Serra Pilada was this mine that Sebastião Salgado, those wonderful photographs of this, it looks like hell. It's just this, looks like something out of Dante, this pit with people carrying. pit. Yeah. yeah, with people carrying all these, this mud and landslides. It, 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 Bolsonaro's father was there. So people talk about the Amazon. They're not interested in the Indians or the effing trees. They want the minerals. And so he's been very pro-mining and basically said, you guys got a blank check. And so... There was illegal mining before, but nothing like. I mean, basically, they're like, well, the president's behind us. We're going in. So let me ask you, how much would you say it's a taking and people are just going in, the government's just going in and saying, get out and we're going to take it? Or how much are they going to these people and exploiting their needs and offering them money? Oh, yeah, the latter, for sure. I mean, both things. But but, But mostly it's them saying, you want some money, then get the hell out of here. We're going to raise cattle here. Yeah, and, and, you know, Bolsonaro... He may even think of himself. He certainly portrays himself as being a friend of indigenous people. It's like, they're living on all these minerals. Why can't they exploit them? You know, to a certain category of Brazilian society, that makes sense. Well, they, you know, this idea they're very poor. They live on this land with all this gold. Why can't they exploit it? Why not? The Brazilian constitution doesn't prohibit mining on indigenous lands. It says that there needs to be specific laws that regulate that so that indigenous peoples can benefit from it. And those laws haven't been passed yet. And And he's desperately trying to pass them. But the problem is mining creates this fever that can't be controlled. I mean, you can see it going on now with the Yanomami, with the Munduruku, with the Kayapo. These miners just come in and the level of devastation, mining is just the worst mm. possible kind of devastation. I, there, was a re, there was a village that I worked in, you know, five years ago. And when you fly over it, you just, you fly for like 45 minutes and you just see this, this river that's just been completely devastated. It's mm. not even in, in its course anymore. It's just been totally turned over. You know, hundreds of square kilometers of devastation. And, because gold mining is completely out of control, illegal mining. And they just— they, they Mostly gold. Gold, diamonds as well, but mostly gold. But not resources for these uh, technological things like chips and so forth. Well, there Some are, of that as well? There, I mean, there's this amazing place in Brazil in the Upper Rio Negro. It's this meteor that landed on Earth, mm-hmm. and it's got the largest reserves of, I think, niobium or with these rare metals for cell phones anywhere in South America. It's in a protected area. It can't be exploited right now. But you could imagine ways— in which these metals could be exploited sustainably and ways that would benefit local people. But right now, it's just the worst possible. It's like the Yukon Valley, just the worst possible gold rush. And But, you know, there's all of these misconceptions about Amazonian 
indigenous peoples and, and the Amazon rainforest. Give me one misconception. Well, there's this idea that the Amazon is being destroyed by this clash between civilization and nature. But it's not really a clash between civilization and nature. It's, it's a clash between two different kinds of civilization. The indigenous peoples of the Amazon have a civilization. And they have lived in the Amazon for thousands of years. And before the conquest, before they were wiped out by diseases, there were these large cities in the Amazon on the scale of the city-states in ancient Egypt. There were large cities with that large populations. There were sort of these garden cities where I wouldn't say people lived in harmony with nature, but they discovered ways of harnessing natural processes for producing food without cutting it down and just planting monocrop, you know, planting barley or rice or, or wheat or wheat or, or cattle or something like that. Like the so, Americans do. <laughs> like the Americans do. And this is even, even scientists, even archaeologists through the 20th century assumed that indigenous peoples in the ancient Amazon were much like the indigenous peoples that they were seeing in the 1950s. These very small groups, nomadic people, you know, sort of primitive peoples. And then, you know, in the 2000s, we started having these major archaeological discoveries, like Michael Heckenberger at University of Florida discovered garden cities in the Shingu with these huge earthworks with dikes and, and roads connecting. Like there was major engineering, Sophisticated engineering that yeah. requires thousands of people to cr- create these causeways and roads and fish ponds. And so there were these civilizations in the Amazon that rather than everywhere else in the world, you had about 11,000 years ago, you had people discover domestication of plants and animals. Everywhere in the world, it happened about the same time, 11,000 years ago. In Egypt, it was barley. In China, it was rice. In Anatolia, it was horses and, and you know, wheat and so on. 11,000 years ago, the people in Egypt were hunting, they were hunter-gatherers hunting gazelles. They started domesticating barley. Three, 4,000 years later, you have pyramids and dynasties. It was the same thing all over the world. And the archaeologists and cultural historians have just assumed this is a universal process in human history. You, you get crops, you domesticate animals, and 5,000 years later— You evolve toward agriculture. And in the Amazon, it doesn't fit the mold because people in the Amazon domesticated crops 11,000 years ago, but they didn't take crop domestication— to agricultural fields and monocultures the way everywhere else in the world. They, they planted crops, they continued to hunt and fish, and they discovered ways of domesticating the forests without having to cut it all down. And so Brazil nut, I, I remember when I was a kid, you'd only get Brazil nuts at Christmas time in your Christmas stocking. You couldn't get it any other time of year. And so these wonderful, amazing Brazil nuts, these delicious nuts, they come from this huge tree, 150 feet tall tree from the Amazon, lives 500, 800 years. The assumption was who in the world would plant a tree that takes 800 years to grow? It's a natural tree. But research that I did with some geneticists in the early 2000s, we discovered that the Brazilian Amazon and Bolivia are filled with these groves that have 15, 20, 50, 100 Brazil nut trees. And then you go for hundreds of kilometers, there's no Brazil nuts. And there's another little grove of Brazil nuts. And so we were able to show using genetics that there is very strong genetic evidence and historical evidence that these are actually, they aren't exactly plantations, but they're often associated with archaeological sites. It was a system. It was a system for producing food using the forest without having to cut it down. And mm-hmm. Brazil nuts is one example. You have acai palm, which is a big thing now. You have all these palm trees. There's a whole system of what's called agroforestry. Agroforestry means you you use the forest like a garden. You don't cut it down. You introduce things, protect things. You take away weeds and vines, and you turn the forest into this productive system. And so the uh, indigenous Amazon peoples perfected this way of harvesting the forest without having to cut it all down. And so when Europeans arrived, especially after, you know, there was a huge population in the Amazon before 1492, and it, 
95% was wiped out by smallpox, measles, warfare, diseases. And so there was this idea that, oh, the, the indigenous peoples of the Amazon of today, of the 1950s, are the way they always have been. No. These are the refugees from this genocide. If you look at the ancient pottery from the Amazon, you have in, in the Tapajós River in, in Brazil, there's a pottery tradition called Santarém. I would say it's as sophisticated as Mayan pottery. It's these incredibly elaborate vases with these figures of humans transforming into jaguars and snakes. It's this beautiful ceramic pottery. And, and the archaeologists, up until mid-1990s, they said, oh, that, that came down from the Andes. There's no way that these primitive people could have had such sophisticated ceramic traditions. They must have learned it from the Andes. And so there's this idea that the Amazon is this primitive place. The indigenous peoples live sort of on the verge of starvation, and they have they have a very low level of culture. Not like the Incas and the Aztecs, the Mayas, a very low level of culture. And the Amazon is this big, wild, pristine place. What we're discovering recently in the past 20 years is that the Amazon has been farmed and gardened by indigenous peoples for thousands of years in ways that don't destroy it. And this is what we need to learn from. We, rather mm -hmm. than cutting down all the trees for planting soybeans or bringing cattle or destroying it with gold mines, we need to learn from these people how to make it productive for food crops and acai palm and, and medicinal plants. And it can be done. Ethnobotanist Glenn Shepard. If you like conversations with passionate conservationists, check out my interview with biologist Charles Munn. It was his love of birds that originally drew him to the Amazon. If you're interested in birds and working in the Amazon is the, one of the most amazing things you can do if you're a bird scientist because the bird diversity there is much higher than, than anywhere else in the world. You'll have 500 species of birds in just a few square miles. So this one park about the size of Massachusetts has 10% of all the bird species in the world. So once you're working there, you become spoiled. You, if you're an ornithologist or a bird scientist, you really want to continue working in such it's a rich habitat. the station of birds. Pretty much. Hear more of my conversation with Charles Munn at heresthething.org. After the break, Glenn Shepard talks about his work with the Cayepo people of northern Brazil to update a 30-year-old exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late. Three very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In his decades in the Amazon, Glenn Shepard has worked closely with indigenous people, particularly the Machigenga of Manu in southeastern Peru, where the Amazon begins, and the Cayepo near the mouth of the Amazon in northern Brazil. Glenn Shepard is a researcher at the Emilio Geldi Museum in Belum, Brazil, one of the oldest and most important research institutes in the Amazon. He's lived in northern Brazil for two decades, but that wasn't always the plan. My plan was sort of to, the, more the traditional, you know, do a PhD, get a university job in the States, go teach. do teach, do summers. But I married a Brazilian and moved to Brazil. You met her where? Met her at Berkeley. She's a biologist at Berkeley. And she was returning home to Brazil. And so I got married and we had three kids and I just sort of stayed. It, was, it wasn't the plan to stay, but, you know, it opens doors when you're there, like not, not just in Brazil, but I'm in the Brazilian Amazon. So people coming through and you just, you just have these opportunities. I mean, for example, I work with the Kayapo indigenous. I, I want you to tell me about that. I just got a job in the Geldi Museum. It's sort of like the Smithsonian of the Amazon. It's this, it's this second oldest museum in Brazil, in Belém, on the Brazilian Amazon. It's in like the north where you are. North, northern region. And it's sort of like a natural history museum, you know, with... Um, Anthropology, archaeology, animals, paleontology. And I just moved there. They, they'd instated me as the curator of the ethnographic collections. And these Kayapo Indians come to town, and they were, they were visiting the collections, and they were looking at collections of objects from their culture, war clubs and feather crowns from the early 1900s. And they say, we really like this. We want to come back and do more of this. Can you find us some money to bring us back to do this? And I said, sure, I'll try. And then he said, and, but make sure you buy cameras because we want to learn how to make films so we can film these objects in the museum and show them back home. But we make these things still. We don't want you to think that we, we've forgotten all this stuff here. We know how to make all this stuff. So we want to make films in the village to show you the, the rituals and how we make these things. Oh, and oh, by the way, we're, we're going to do an initiation ritual in a month and a half. You want to come and film it? And I was like, yeah. So they just came. Normally, the anthropologist shows up in the village with this strange idea, I want to study this. Is this. Kayapo. this is the Kayapo. The anthropologist shows them in the village. Now, where are they in relation to where you are? In the, they're, they're in the north as well? They're in, they're in southern Pará. So I'm in, 
I'm in the northern part of Pará on the Amazon River. They're in the headwaters of the Xingu River. That's the name that you hear a lot. So they're impacted by— This the, is still the, northern Brazil. It's still northern Brazil, but it's the southern part of northern of Brazil. Northern Brazil. Right. And, and it, these are states or provinces? What do they call them? Pará is a state. Right. Okay. Another—I mean, Amazon is really huge. If it weren't for its vastness, it would have been gone long ago. Right. It's huge. I mean, the, if you, the Amazon basin itself is bigger than all of Europe. The country of Brazil is bigger than the United States without Alaska. People mm-hmm. don't—the way the maps are done— Countries around the equator sure. look smaller. Yeah. And Brazil is bigger than the United States without Alaska. And the Amazon is bigger than all of Europe. Amazon's huge. Mm-hmm. And, and it is being cut down at a tremendous rate. But because there's just so much of it, it, there is still some left. If it were anywhere else, it would have been gone long ago. Mm-hmm. Now, you had an exhibit planned last year at the American Museum of Natural History about the Kayapo. Yeah, 30 years ago, Robert Carnero, who was the curator of South American ethology for almost 50 years, he recently passed away. He passed away just early last year. He put up an exhibit at the American Museum in the late 1980s. It's a beautiful exhibit. You've probably seen it. It shows indigenous peoples as they were at the moment of contact. So it shows these wonderful mannequins, lifelike mannequins, indigenous peoples of different Amazonian cultures wearing their traditional clothes and performing different traditional activities. He sort of conceived of the exhibit as like themes and variations. So there's shamanism. What are the different kinds of shamanism? Houses. What are the different kinds of houses that Amazonian people build? How's warfare work in the Amazon? Agriculture, hunting. And so it's, it's an exhibit that shows people as they were at the time, like in the 1950s. And among those exhibits, there is an image. It's probably the most powerful figure in the exhibit. It's a Kayapo warrior, all covered in face paint, body paint, with this feather crown and this huge war club and this big lip plug, like Rauni, the Kayapo mm-hmm. leader, with this big lip plug. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it, and it's in the section on warfare. And it's just a very impressive object. And it just so happened that in 1991, the Kayapo leaders were in New York with Terrence Turner, famous anthropologist from. Chicago, who passed away also recently. And he brought these Kayapo activists. They were, they were going to the World Bank and visiting New York. And he stopped by the museum and visited. And so they looked at this Kayapo warrior. And Robert Cornero said, what do you think? Is it, he was afraid that they, would, they wouldn't like the savage you know, presentation as a savage. They, oh, this is great. We love it. This is the way we are. We're very warlike. We love this thing. But you're missing a headdress. And he, he needs body paint. And you should put a necklace. And so they took their own body adornments and put them onto this mannequin, a headdress, a necklace, I think armbands, and they painted it. So the paint that's on that mannequin, the Kayapo actually put on it in 1991. And so then I came up to the American Museum last year, January 2020, and the idea was to do an exhibit, a new exhibit about the Kayapo that reflected on this visit of the Kayapo in 1991, you know, 30 years ago, to the museum and how they've changed in the meantime. The idea was to create, that shows the Kayapo warrior holding this war club. What we did, there's a big photograph of a Kayapo warrior holding, rather than a war club, he's holding a camera, a video camera, looking at us. Because the Kayapo, they see the camera as a kind of weapon. In, in the old days of warfare, the Kayapo, when they would raid each other, they, they had like these the war raids, and they were interested in capturing trophies. They would capture weapons, war clubs, songs, body ornaments. They would capture guns from their enemies. So the idea isn't so the, the warfare isn't about conquering your your enemy's land and taking over the land. It's about conquering the trappings of their civilization and incorporating them into your civilization. And so for them, they think of the video camera, and they say this literally: the video camera is a weapon. It's like bow and arrows. We capture the weapon, this camera from the white people. They call them kubeng, white people, non-indigenous peoples, and then we use that as a weapon to to defend our culture. 
And so the exhibit is all about how they use cameras. They want to give their own narrative about what's going on rather than the official Brazilian narrative. There's two things I want to finish with. One thing, I believe that the pandemic was the dress rehearsal for what's going to happen in terms of global warming in this society. People have been asked to make sacrifices and to understand certain limitations and to understand their own personal responsibility and to in participating in a program that's going to help us to manage some of these problems. And we've come out with a very poor score. And that the global warming is going to come and going to create a whole other uh, menu of edicts we have to live by uh, in terms of uh, sacrifices. And, 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 and a big part of that has to do with food. You're not going to be able to eat whatever you want, whatever you want. You're going to have to eat less beef because beef production is very toxifying and so forth. What is your opinion about that? Are you seeing any signs of global warming down where you are? Absolutely. What are you Absolutely. seeing? The rainfall patterns are completely different now. Indigenous people talk about this. They say, you know, it used, to, it used to be you could count on it raining in such and such a time and not raining so you could plant your crops. And now it'll be a drought and then the rains come and, you know, villages have been washed away and other places, you know, they, they plant no their crops. No more reliability. No, the, the climate has gotten completely crazy. And the Amazon is this huge pump. It pumps water from northern Brazil to southern Brazil. It's this gigantic, like, suction pump that sends water to the the farmers in southern Brazil who were funding Bolsonaro and the destruction. And it's going to come back and it could turn southern Brazil into – if you look all around the globe at the latitude of where southern Brazil the is – The desertification thing it's, is happening. It's the Gobi Desert. It's the, it's the Kalahari. It's that same latitude. These productive farmlands in Brazil, everywhere else in the world is a desert. And it, the only reason it's not a desert in Brazil is because of the Amazon. You know, one of the things you see in the work you do, the unifying idea behind all this kind of work, is that we've lived in a country that has gone around the world and told everybody what we can teach them. And global warming is going to teach us what those people can teach us. What can the indigenous peoples, of, and, and even historically, what can they teach us that's going to help us to at least address, not solve, but at least address the climate change problem that is going to come pouring down on top of us in some horrible way. Well, there's an interesting statistic. If you take all of the fruits of these edible fruits that indigenous peoples manage in the Amazon rainforest, Brazil nut, acai, dozens and dozens of fruits, they produce something like 40 times the protein of all the cattle that's produced in the Amazon. Right. So it's right. The, there's no lack of food right. in the Amazon. Right. It's the model. We're... We're not getting it wrong across the board, but pretty close. Pretty close. Ethnobotanist Glenn Shepard. Philippe D'Andrade has a singular mission, to help everyone care about wild animals, and he'll go to any lengths to do it. D'Andrade envisioned his career from the time he got his first camera. His big break came in 2015, when he won a National Geographic film competition. He made a short film called Adapt. It's an apt title for both nature and Philippe's own story. D'Andrade grew up extremely poor, first in Brazil and then as an undocumented immigrant in Cleveland. I was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and what that allowed me to have at such an early age, which was an injection, of wildlife into the system. And what I mean by that is my mom would take me to the Amazon. She would take me floating down rivers. We would go camping for months at a time. I would go swimming in the ocean. I would go tree climbing. This was my introduction to life. And it wasn't until about six when we moved to Cleveland. And so I had that kind of taken away from me, that zest and, and surrounding of nature. And 
it never truly left the system. If anything, it just kind of made me hungry for more wildlife, for more adventure. That's basically what set me on this path to doing what I do today, which is trying to reintegrate myself into nature as, as often as I can in my line of work as a National Geographic Explorer. But at an early age, I had an interesting relationship with my biological father. He was a very abusive person. He was on drugs and he was uh, not the nicest person to my mom. So family life wasn't necessarily the best as I was growing up. And that simultaneously with that passion for nature also created an escape for me. It allowed me to connect with nature into wild animals because a lot of people say animals don't have a voice. And I believe it's rather that people aren't listening. You know, communication is a, is a major element across every single species, not just the human. So animals are talking to us. It's just that we're not necessarily listening. And as an immigrant raised by a single mother in poverty, an illegal immigrant at that, I felt like I had a voice and people weren't listening. So it was this affinity, passion, animals make my heart sing. And then you accompany that with this escapism that I found at an early age. And because animals in a way saved me, it became my life's mission to save them. So you're in Rio, but your mother would take you to the countryside. You go out to the country. Absolutely. So we actually got displaced because of a flood. And that's what took us to Rio. I was born in the Rio hospital, but then was raised on the, the countryside. But because of a flood, we went back to Rio de Janeiro and the favelas. Uh, so yeah, it was always about getting back to the roots, getting back to home. I mean, my mom had not pet monkeys, but she had monkeys at the house growing up. She had anacondas, you know, they saw jaguars on the red. So this was something that she grew up with and kind of tried to instill in us. Well, as for people who don't know about what a favela is in some of the cities of, uh, of Brazil and beyond, the favelas that I saw were people picking through garbage dumps and, uh, you know, really, like some of the, the fiercest poverty I'd ever seen in my life. Was that, was that how you grew up? That's actually exactly how we grew up. As you could imagine, whenever we, we think about like immigrating in the sense of moving from one country to another, but when you're raised in a developing nation, you can immigrate even within your own country and find that it's a complete culture shock, right? So growing up in the countryside, we were poor, but we didn't know we were poor. We had everything that right. we needed. You know, we were poor financially, but we had food every day. We had experiences. We had clean water. There was no violence. And then all of a sudden we go to Rio de Janeiro and we're like, we're poor. You know, it was, it was weird that somebody you knew didn't die that week. Right. Um, and that's what I think led my father down this path of just violence and rage and drugs. And ultimately the reason why my mom wanted to get us out of there. You know, so yeah, when you picture like favelas or slums or, you know, the the kind of bottom of the barrel um, in terms of uh, quality of life, that's what we were, that's what we had in Rio de Janeiro. So anything was, was better. Now, when you go from Brazil to Cleveland, Ohio, was there a job waiting for your father or your mother there? So it was interesting. We, we came to the States, uh, my mom, my sister, and I, because my dad had work here. But then when we came here, he was just kind of out of control. And he went back to Brazil and he took all of our documents. 
So this is something that a lot of people think with immigrants is like, you know, they're always looking for a way out that couldn't be further from the truth. We were actually pretty much stranded in the States because we had no way of going back. We didn't have passports, any documentation, anything like that. So I think my mom just looked up, you know, cost of living and was like, oh, this place is cheap enough. It's developing enough. It looks like there's a small Brazilian population. You know, why we didn't go to Boston instead, I don't know where there's a right. healthier and bigger Brazilian population, but we chose Cleveland. Interesting. So the boy from the favela who goes to Cleveland ends up at the University of Florida. Where were you in Gainesville or where? Are I you? was in Gainesville, Florida. How did you pay for it? Well, I worked my ass off. I literally worked three jobs full time and I did everything. I washed dishes. I photographed Bob Mitzvahs. I worked at the TV and radio station. And it, I don't even want to say it was like a, a difficulty because there was no other option. I just watched my mom do whatever she had to do to make it. No questions asked, just work her ass off and get it done. And so I went into university with that same mindset. I realized that I was lucky to have a higher education. I was going to make something of it. And so college for me probably looked a lot different than most people because I never thought I was going to go to college. You know, I was illegal for almost 15 years. Right. So university was very, very, very far off in the distance. So when I actually had the opportunity, I was like, I'm going to pick my dream school. I'm going to do whatever I have to to make it happen. I'm going to double major and I'm going to work my ass off and absolutely make something of myself. And so I worked throughout university like I said, double major. And I was as active as a college student could possibly be every single weekend, making films every single weekend, you know, volunteering, doing internships, catching alligators, catching snakes, tagging sharks. I was involved in biology and in film. And I also saw an opportunity, Alec, because there was no track for wildlife filmmakers or for, you know, budding National Geographic photographers or explorers. So I had to go and do that myself if I were going to make it happen. This is the thing you had your sights on from the beginning. You were going to become a wildlife documentary filmmaker. For me, it's kind of always been a plan A type of thing. And when you come out of the background that, you know, I talked about earlier, there's only an upside. So I've always had it wedged in my mentality that if I got the opportunity or if I was going to become legal in this country, there is no plan B. Plan A for me has always been to work for National Geographic, to become an explorer, to make wildlife films, to tell conservation stories, and to spend a wild life, to spend 99.9% .9 of my time in nature, infused in a setting surrounded by wild characters. So I would say the first decision I made that set me up for, for my career was going to the University of Florida, paying out-of-state tuition, you know, truly living on my own. And the second decision was before I even graduated, I decided to hike the Appalachian Trail. So I spent six months living in the woods, going from Georgia to Maine. And I mean, you know, when you make a decision like that, you're all in. And I'll never forget this instance that I had on the Appalachian Trail. The most critical conversation I've ever had with a human being was an 80-something-year-old man at a Dollar General in Franklin, North Carolina. And when you look at the map on the Appalachian Trail, you know, if it's like this, like if it's a foot, I was not even an inch. Like I barely started with this thing. 
And there was this 80 something year old guy at the Dollar General and he looks at me up and down because I smell like Bigfoot's toe jam and regret, you know, just <laughs> had gotten off the woods and just buying a pack of ramen noodles. And he's like, are you homeless or what's going on here? And I was like, I'm hiking the Appalachian Trail. And he's like, wow, you're, you're actually doing it? And I was like, yeah, it's something that I convinced myself I was going to do. And, you know, I, I started in Georgia about a month ago. And he's like, I've always wanted to do something like that. I've always wanted to take a big adventure in my life. But what about the odds of failing? What about getting hungry or hypothermia or, you know, just simply not reaching your end mark? Aren't you worried about failing? And I told him, I said, out of all the people that wish they had taken one step on the Appalachian Trail and hadn't, and about 2,000 people a year hike this thing, the single fact that I had started already makes me a success. When I finished this, I would have been a success six months ago, not because of the destination, right. but because of the mentality that pushed me onto the mountain in the first place. And I could see this guy breaking down in front of me, this 80 something year old, you know, gentleman speaking to me about this. And he just told me, never, ever, ever live with regret. Keep that mentality and don't allow failing something to keep you from doing it because that's what kept me from going after my dreams. And it was at a Dollar General in Franklin, North Carolina, where I was like, wow. okay, I'm not just literally on the right path with this hiking thing. I'm metaphorically on the right path with this mentality of just go after it, start. Now, some people have suggested that you're the next Steve Irwin in some case, but we all know how he ended up. Describe a couple occasions where you bit off more than you could chew, where you thought you were in trouble. You thought you were in danger. Well, my first night in New York City after having never been there before. <laughs> You're on the subway. Yeah, that's dangerous, man. That's some crazy humans, shit. Humans scare the shit out of me. Yeah, Significant. I will take a jaguar. I will take a shark. I will take a snake any day over a human being. I got bit by an individual my first train ride in New York City, and I had just got done on the Appalachian Welcome Trail. Welcome to New York. Yeah. Yeah. Had 17 cents to my name, and... I was so exhausted that I put my giant backpack next to me, fell asleep on the train. And I guess this gentleman next to me was like shaking me to get off of him. And I wasn't quite responding. And so I just literally had something bit me and woke up to this guy on a train yelling at me like, get the F off me, man. Like, where do you think you're at? And I was just like, yeah. wow. So the scaredest I've ever been when it comes to a wild animal is getting bit by somebody I didn't know on the New York City so other than your, the subway in New York, where in the wild encountering an animal have you ever been really in danger? I've never been in danger from an animal. The one instance where I will say I truly had my heart jump out of my chest is my first documentary for National Geographic was Jaguar Beach, where we were documenting jaguars eating sea turtles in Costa Rica. And I waited 21 days inside of a camera hide. 21 days inside of a hide in the dry forest feels like you're inside of a dragon's womb. I mean, there's no other way around it. It's so many mosquitoes that you think you're going to get lifted off the ground. You've got one bucket for your water. You've got another bucket to go to the bathroom in and you can't confuse the two. And it's, it's miserable to say the least. And I had this jaguar. Out of 21 days, I had a 10-minute experience with the jaguar, and she was pregnant. And 
she got a bit curious. We were filming with infrared lights, which means that she couldn't, they weren't white lights, so she couldn't see the light emitting from our lights because they were red and their eyes don't pick up on that sensor. And so she just kept coming closer, 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 and closer. And I was in the middle of the dry forest by myself, you know, didn't know how far away I was from the next human being with a wild, hungry jaguar literally breathing down my neck on the other side of this camera hide, which was made out of, you know, nylon tent material. And in that moment, I was like, what the hell did I get myself into? But I kept my composure. I just stayed there. I didn't make a single noise. And I knew that she could feel me because the whiskers of a cat work similarly to the sensory organs of a shark where they can just pick up on environmental mm -hmm. changes. You know, things like change in wind direction, smell, density. Jaguars just have a knack of picking up like something's different without even mm -hmm. seeing it. And so she knew that I was there even though she couldn't see me. And in that moment, I literally had the most powerful presence I've ever been presented with right in front of me. And the crazy thing about that Jaguar is two months after we left, she had those cubs and the scientists let me name them. And so I named one Jane after my idol, Jane Goodall. And I said, you guys get to name the next one. And they said, we're going to name it Philippe. So now there's a Jane Goodall and there's a Philippe Jaguar cub running around the beaches of Costa Rica causing terror. And even though nothing happened, and I can't say that something would have happened if I behaved differently, just being presented in that kind of situation was enough to make you realize how small you are in nature. When you go on these trips and you're going to be shooting, how many people do you bring with you? So in, in this line of work, less is more. Right. Typically, Anytime I'm scouting, researching, like, you know, trying to figure something out, it's me and a biologist or me and a ranger or me and a poacher or somebody that understands the animal in the area. That's typically it. So two people I like to keep it to. When I'm working and we're filming, a team of three or four is absolutely perfect. Are you ever armed? Never armed. Is anybody armed? Absolutely not. Wow. And I will say that's not to say that in certain situations you shouldn't, but for anybody listening to this, you know, and, and this is a critical element of, of what I do if you're kind of looking to get into this, you know, preparation is absolutely key. Preparation uh -huh. is absolutely the name of the game. And so the only instance, which is kind of funny where I've ever been armed, was my first assignment with National Geographic was in Botswana, which is Jurassic Park, the Okavanga Delta. It's just everything you could ever hope for. Everybody should visit there and, and they would lock on to why we need to save this planet. But we were documenting lions eating elephants. And wow. so we spent 24 hours a day for the first month and a half that I was there side by side with the elephants. But this is what I mean when it comes to preparation. You hear of all these accidents, lions ripping tourists out of vehicles or, you know, person sticking out their hand and getting their hand bitten off by a lion when they're trying to take a photo. That's because either A, they're not understanding the animal or B, they're not listening to what the guide is telling them. Mm -hmm. When we film lions in Africa, we keep all of our body parts 
inside the vehicle. Mm -hmm. We don't have windshields. We don't have doors. We don't have windows. It's 360 degree view and the car is entirely open. Mm -hmm. I've had leopards, lions, hyenas stick their heads inside of a vehicle. I've woken up to a snouted cobra on the steering wheel, which mm -hmm. is infamously the snake that killed Cleopatra. You know, I was truly excited about that. My first snouted cobra, something I've always wanted to see because I had an obsession with Cleopatra when I was younger. So anyways, what I mean by that is the animal sees the vehicle as a single unit. As long as you don't break the unit by sticking your arm out, sticking your head out, getting out of the vehicle, they don't distinguish you from that unit. So it's just about knowing the situation that you're getting yourself into and abiding by the rules. Because in nature, animals make the rules. So when you break those rules, that's when you have accidents. It's no different than when, it, you know, diving with a shark. Sharks will speak to you. When she doesn't want you in the area anymore, she'll lower her pectoral fins and she'll arch her back and just kind of change the body language that she's giving you. And when that happens, trust me, you want to listen to her. So it's about reading the situation, understanding what you're getting yourself into, and being able to speak animal. And I guarantee you, if you can do that, accidents are very, 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 very minimal in my line of work. The host of Nat Geo Wild's Untamed series, Philippe D'Andrade. If you're enjoying this conversation, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend and follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Philippe D'Andrade talks about his introduction to wildlife killing contests. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today 
at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Earlier this year, Philippe D'Andrade released a film in collaboration with Project Coyote to bring awareness to wildlife killing contests. It's basically a hunting tournament where the goal is to kill as many animals as possible. And they target important and critical predators like foxes, wolves, bobcats, pumas, and coyotes. And to give you an idea of what this looks like is it's purely animal genocide. I went to one tournament in Texas in 2020 called the West Texas Big Bobcat Tournament. In one tournament, in one state, in one weekend, 718 teams signed up and one team killed 116 animals. And it's happening in over 40 states. Where did you first encounter this? Okay, So I'm about to tell this for the first time publicly. I found out about these killing contests because I was doing a documentary with my great friend, Ben Masters, about Trump's physical wall as it relates to wildlife, because it was something that nobody was talking about. So we said, what if we do the entire Rio Grande along the border between Texas and Mexico by horseback riding? mountain biking and canoeing as to do an ecological survey of how a physical barrier would obstruct nature. And one day we ended up on this guy's property that he was managing on the Texas side and we got held up. And so the next day at breakfast, we were a day late and he goes, Hey, you're the cat guy, right? And that week, I was National Geographic's 2018 Big Cat Ambassador. So I was doing all these commercials and social media campaign to cause an uproar, you know, a donation-based incentive to keep cats around on our planet. So this guy recognized me from that and was like, I got you guys beers, I got you guys breakfast, come and sit down, enjoy a warm, hot meal. So we're sitting there eating a breakfast burrito and he goes, hey, cat guy, how do you like your breakfast? And I was like, man, it's the first warm thing we've had in a week, like, thank you so much. He goes into his truck and he comes back with a dead bobcat, just the head and the skin just hanging there, lifeless. And he walks over to me and he says, if you're going to stand me up for breakfast, then I'm going to feed you cat. And he just throws the bobcat at me. Mm. And I just tried to break this down psychologically. And I was mad, I was hurt, I was sad, I was all these crockpots of human emotion, but more than anything, I was confused. And I was like, you just shot a bobcat and fed it to us as a prank? Like, is that your version of funny? Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, well, it's fine, I call him in every weekend. And I was like, what do you mean call him in? And he's like, I do these predator killing contests. And I was like, what are those? And he starts to show me photos and he is a competitor in these wildlife killing contests. So the way I got exposed to this niche community that is growing was by being fed one of my favorite animals Mm. the same week 
that I was mm. running a campaign with National Geographic to oh, protect wild cats. Oh, so that was the universe giving me a call. And I was just lucky enough to answer the call and to say, okay, I have to learn more about this. I have to investigate this and I have to see what's going on here. And when I did and I started to pull back that Band-Aid, it was the ugliest cut that I had seen in American culture when it comes to our relationship with wildlife. Because it's not people killing to survive. It's mm -hmm. not people killing to feed their family. It's people killing for sport. It's people killing because it shows how far we've lost ourselves as a culture, as a species, as, as a race, when it comes to our relationship with nature, and that we think that, you know, for a belt buckle or for a couple hundred bucks, that validates calling in a wild animal, shooting it, showing up to a weigh-in, and then throwing in a pit as if it were garbage, or throwing it in a pit with other animals and setting that on fire. Because that is literally what's happening at these tournaments. It's not for wildlife management because indiscriminate killing doesn't work. It's not helping farmers. It's just simply to kill. It's sport killing. And that to me is the indifference of good men. It's killing to kill. What was, what was something you saw that was glorious? So I'll give you a, a quick story right now of the positive note. And when I was in the Osa Peninsula, which is 2.5% of the Earth's biodiversity, it's the most ecologically intense hotspot in the world, according to National Geographic. And Osa Peninsula is on the border of Costa Rica in Panama. I went down there. We took out 30 school kids on a boat and took them to Cano Island, which is the only place one of the only one of few places in the world where the northern and southern humpback whales aggregate to give birth. And we show them whales and dolphins for the first time. And they absolutely like their minds exploded. They saw dolphins bow riding in front of and behind the boat, jumping around the boat. They saw whales breaching. They saw whale babies. And then we made them pick pieces of plastic out of the ocean because we said, here's these animals. We could see them falling in love with it immediately. And then we wanted to educate them about the destruction that human beings are having on their habitat. The next time I went down to the Osa, I was at a wedding and a mom came up to me super upset and was like, because of you, I can't buy Nutella because it has palm oil in it. And my daughter tells me that it's cutting down the rainforest of the jaguar and we can't buy plastic because it's, my daughter told me that it ends up inside of the whale and just this light bulb went off. And I was like, wow, like this is how you influence parents. This is how you influence, you know, the generation of voters and of people with money is you reach their kids. And so I wrote an environmental education curriculum through National Geographic, we got it funded, working with the Ministry of, of Education, Environment and Tourism down in Costa Rica, and we're implementing environmental education into the entire public school system of Costa Rica, making it the first country in the world where kids are gonna be learning about conservation. And why I deem this a major upside is because kids have this unspoiled interpretation of truth. And so when you give them the truth and they can see it making sense in front of them, they make responsible decisions and they can also influence their parents to make responsible decisions. So when everybody says kids are the future, I don't believe that. Kids are the absolute right now. Someone that wants to follow in your footsteps, what is your recommendation to them? How should they start? 
Well, it's it's funny because Darwin said it wasn't the smartest, it wasn't the strongest, it wasn't the spa- fastest species. It was the species most adaptable, which is right. why I named my, exactly. my, my <laughs> film Adapt. Um, to somebody that wants to get involved, whatever age, and it doesn't have to be somebody young because believe it or not, I, I get more of this question from people looking for a second or third career change or a parent than anything, you know, because they see the signs all around them and they love their kids and they don't want their kids to grow up in a world that's burning down around them. So they, I get questions from parents all the time. What can I do? How can I get involved? And what I always am a big preacher of is honesty. Be honest with yourself. What type of person are you? What makes your heart sing? What is the least friction that you could introduce into your life where you will translate the message that you have in your heart about wildlife, about conservation, about the planet, streamlined? If you're somebody that's a photographer, use your camera as an excuse, as a vessel to share your stories. So find out who you are find what makes your heart sing and get into it in a way that invigorates your passion and add your voice to conservation. I love that. This is my thanks to you. Be safe and we'll see you down the road, okay? Stay wild, Alec. My thanks to Glenn Shepard and Philippe D'Andrade. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeart. Radio. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.